It's Friday, November 12th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, best-selling author Anthony Dewar, who brought us About Grace and All the Light We Cannot See, is out now with his latest, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Our Jane Marchant has that conversation. Then, state lawmakers are passing educational gag orders, silencing debate in America's classrooms while book banning efforts are escalating. We talked to author George M. Johnson on efforts to keep his book out of the hands of students. And then we recap the toughest questions about free speech this week with Pen America CEO Suzanne Nossel. I'm Stephen Fee. That's all coming up on the Pen Pod. Award-winning author Anthony Dewar. Our Jane Marchant has that conversation. Today, it's my absolute pleasure to speak with Anthony Dewar, author of the beautiful short story collections The Shell Collector and Memory Wall, the memoir Four Seasons in Rome, and the novels About Grace and All the Light We Cannot See, which remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over 200 weeks and was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and is now being adapted as a limited series by Netflix. Dewar's work has also been translated into over 40 languages and has won many honors, including the Barnes & Noble Discover Prize, the Rome Prize, the New York Public Library's Young Lions Award, the Story Prize, and many, many more. His newest novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which we'll talk about today, was published this past September and is already shortlisted for the National Book Award and appears on many other esteemed lists. Dewar lives in Boise, Idaho with his wife and two sons. So Cloud Cuckoo Land is set in Constantinople in the 15th century in a small town in present-day Idaho and on an interstellar spaceship decades from now and is a soaring work of spectacular metafiction about children on the cusp of adulthood. Uh, It is a magnificent tapestry that reflects our vast interconnectedness with each other, those who lived before us, and and those who will come long after we're gone. Suffice it to say, there's not enough time at all in this interview, Tony, to to ask you all of the questions that I have. But I think we can start with your writing process. You know, how much fun was writing this book? How much fun did you have writing this book? How did you become a writer? You know, what were the steps on the journey to get here? Oh, thanks, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to meet you virtually for the first time. Um, Gosh, okay, my journey as a writer, I was... I was secretly really wanted to be a writer, even as a kid. It wasn't something like that. My parents, my parents didn't have novelists over for dinner. Let's just say, you know, there wasn't a Jane podcast from Penn that we listened to at dinner time. Uh, but I just loved books so much. I loved the library, and uh, I was the youngest, and I think that helped. My oldest brother went to MIT at age seventeen, and I think my parents were like, "Okay, we've succeeded. Like, it's okay if the." other ones do weirder stuff. So even though I was writing stories and notebooks all through high school, I still don't really show them to people. I just felt this pressure that you had to come up with something that would make money or that somehow you had to enter the stream of capitalism. Uh, And in college, I was an English and history major. And um, I didn't take any creative writing classes, mostly because I just thought, uh, you know, that I don't know, I'd be made fun of, or it just wasn't something that was practical enough. But the whole time I was writing stories in notebooks, the whole way, and imitating everything, you know, from the beginning with the beats. I loved the beats so much when I was 15 and 16. And then college, you get turned on to like Virginia Woolf or Catherine Ann Porter, and you start reading short stories seriously for the first time. And I'm so in love with those and trying to finish like a a story in in 5,000 words or 6,000 words, so exciting. But uh, still didn't have the guts to show them to anybody until after college. I worked in a fish packing plant in Alaska and then worked as a cook in Telluride, Colorado, and realized I was reading a lot more than a lot of my friends and thought, I just had this, my, my father-in-law calls it the rocking chair theory. I, I just had this thought, like, I don't want to be 80 and sit in my rocking chair and regret it and regret never having tried this kind of like this grand adventure you're going to go on where you're trying, you know, just take this risk now and do it and try it and see it, see if it works for you to make stuff all day long. So I'm so grateful that I did that before I had kids or had any bills. And I applied to all these graduate schools and only got into one Bowling Green State University 
and it was just a little stipend and a tuition waiver, but I didn't have to go into debt to get an MFA. And I could tell my parents I was doing something. And it gave me two years. I had worked just enough to understand the utter amazing freedom of waking up and getting to read and write every day instead of having to go throw fish into a bin or cook all day long in a kitchen on my feet. So I was just so excited. And I still try to recapture that joy on the days when things are going slow to remember what a privilege it is to get to do this most of my time. As for Cloud Cuckoo Land, was it a joy? Yeah, there's days, of course, when it's really joyful. I tried to build this fable within the story that we can talk about that is really silly and uh, plays with, you know, what is our Cloud Cuckoo Land? What's our utopia in the sky? And I had a lot of fun, um, although I was worried about even that, concocting this crazy fable, these 24 pieces of an ancient fable in this story. Uh, but uh, anytime you're in an ensemble novel, there is a lot of pleasure because if you get stuck somewhere, there's always something to work on. If you get stuck in Zeno sections or in Anna sections, you know, you're like, oh, I don't know what a prisoner of war would have eaten in Korea and the you know, 1950s. Then suddenly you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go research footwear in the Ottoman army in the 15th century. And <laughs> so there's always some place you can direct your energy that makes you feel like you're making some progress. But the architecture of the novel is pretty complicated. And there were days that despair started to creep in like I'm never going to solve this puzzle I've like locked myself in this labyrinth of my own construction and I'm not going to be able to find my way out so there's a lot of days when and I'm sure many people listening can relate who are writers you know you've written yourself into this place but you're not sure you can finish the book and so there the joy oscillates between despair and joy often yeah I'm just imagining you sitting in a room with like note cards with basic plot points or storylines and then throwing them everywhere and then reorganizing them because the the structure is not simple whatsoever. You're moving back and forth and sometimes it's like a hundred pages before you go back to Constance and then you, you're moving and you're in, you know, actually physically moving with these people in places. So how do you go about actually plotting your novels? How do you go and structure them? What do you what do you physically do with the work? Yeah, great question. Um, often, uh, as I'm sure many folks know, you're, and I'm going to use the verb oscillate again, you're moving between like the micro details of the work, like what am I going to have this one character say to this other character in this scene, in this moment, or what's the sky doing overhead, or what are they going to be wearing in this moment? And the, the half the day or 60% of the day, you're just working in these really micro decisions. And it's really important to lift yourself out of the micro and move into the macro during your writing day. Or for me, that's like if I take a walk during lunch or I walk the dogs in the evening or I'm doing the dishes or the folding the laundry. Sometimes those reflective moments are the moments when you're like, what is this thing I'm making? And how you, know, you can move into the philosophical questions or the moral questions that you're struggling with in the work. But sometimes it's structural questions too. Like you're asking like, how can I keep all five of these plates spinning in the reader's consciousness and how frequently do I have to go touch those plates so they don't wobble off their poles and fall down and crash and the reader forgets about what's happening in Zeno's or Constance's sections. So um, often those for me come in the evenings and in terms of practicality, sometimes I'll print out, I work in, for some reason I've been working in these little chapters, like 600, 700 word little two page chapterettes and I'll print them out and lay them on the carpet and try to understand kind of read the last paragraphs of one and the next the, or first paragraphs of the next see how first what kind of resonances i can kind of try to construct between the two when they're placed next to each other but also how they'll start to work in sequence and sometimes i'll draw too i'll draw what i think are kind of simulacra of the whole structure and in this novel there's so many sieges within sieges and books within books and uh, memories within minds that often it came to me as like a series, like a bullseye, a series of concentric circles, or maybe a series of spheres, one inside the next. I have the fable, maybe this like tightly coiled fist at the center. And then I have, there's a Constance who's trapped in this vault for reasons I probably shouldn't spoil on the podcast, but she's trapped with the pieces of this book in her lap. And then around that, there's these five children in a rural library in Idaho, and they're trapped for a certain amount of time as well with this story also very they're putting on a play of the same story and then maybe the outer circle is anna she's trapped inside the 1453 siege of constantinople 
And so there's real walls all around each of the characters and also kind of metaphorical walls. And in each case, the story kind of interpenetrates time. And uh, I don't know, I just tried to rotate all of those concentric spheres inside of one another. Oh, that's amazing. It's like a merry-go-round on a merry-go-round on a merry-go-round. Absolutely. And I try to move, but then a book has to be linear because I wanted to figure out a way maybe the reader could like read all three past, present, and future at the same time. But of course, that's absurd. There's no way to cram all that into somebody's mind. You have to turn pages. And the way we Westerners read is left to right. You know, there's like this real linear journey. So it was a real struggle to try to figure out how could I get all these things moving and you have to trust a reader's subconscious to hold this kind of spinning narrative while she moves to the next. And sometimes that can actually really work in your favor as a writer. Suspense is really about holding something, you know, the word, uh, the Latin root pend, like a pendulum is inside of suspend. And there's something about just having it hold and swinging back and forth in her subconscious when she goes and reads the next pages about another character. Sometimes that can actually accumulate a little momentum for you with the pause. It's like in the break between characters, uh, storylines, sometimes the reader does a little work for you there if you just break and then return a little bit later to the character. Yeah, and that kind of stomach lurch, like if you're on a ride at a at a fair and you kind of are just about to pause before you drop and your stomach's kind of doing a weird, weird movement that's outside of the ride. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I was, now I'm all lost with the questions because I wanted to ask you so many other ones, uh, but you're talking about the timeline. The book starts on February 20th, 2020. Did you, how did that date even come to your mind and what were you doing on the real February 20th of 2020? <laughs> yeah, I was blithely ignorant of COVID, basically. Uh, I was really finishing the novel. I told my editor and agent I would finish uh, around Christmas time of of December 20 of December 2019 uh, but of course I blew past that deadline and so I was really moving downhill with the book trying to piece together I think there's about 400 of these little sections in this novel trying to piece them all together in the beginning of March 2020 and uh, I think I sent it to my editor maybe March 31st 2020 something like that uh, but yeah those first, those first two weeks oh my gosh so the novel has um, this siege of a rural library in Idaho as the beginning moment and really the ending moment of the novel, this kind of frame built around it. And originally, I figured the book would come out in 2021, so I set that that section then. But I have five fifth graders working on a play with an octogenarian man, a, a translator. There's no way they would have been able to do that with masks on. Plus, they're in a dress rehearsal, hoping an audience will come the next night. So just practically, I knew very early the pandemic was going to upset that, which is, of course, the least of anybody's problems that you have to shift the timeline in your dumb little novel because of the pandemic. But I, I thought maybe if I shifted back to the moments when I was finishing the book, um, in this almost time of innocence, this last time of innocence, maybe for the, you know, for our, for our world, really, in a sense, the reader might sense that that date might do me a favor and that the reader might sense that on February 20th, 2020, things are about to change all across the globe. And um, that way I, I still could have the innocence of these kids working on this silly play. And um, I don't know. I just thought maybe the weight of the pandemic is coming. I'm fascinated by fiction that uses external knowledge that relies on something a reader knows coming into it. The example that comes into my mind immediately is Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall novels, where you know Anne Boleyn's head's going to come off. You might not know anything else about the reign of King Henry VIII or anything, but because the reader comes into the books knowing her head's going to come off, there's like this delicious anticipation. And so I'm always interested to see how readers both educate, uh, how writers educate readers and how writers assume certain things that readers will know coming into a novel. That's fascinating. And so for the listeners who haven't already read the book, I mean, it's on the first pages that Constance is this young girl who's essentially quarantined in part of a spaceship, uh, this intergalactic arc to, to save humanity. So that was that already in your head 
pre-COVID? Yeah, the whole, there's, there is, I don't think it spoils too much, Jane, to say mm-hmm. there's a pandemic and counts as sections. Um, I don't think it ruins too much. Um, I think it's clear in the beginning. Well, yeah, I was, well, clear. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, books for me have always been a way to slip out of the confines of my own boring, white, bald man life of like going to the supermarket and buying chicken breasts and folding the socks. And and even before that, as a kid, you know, growing up in a family in Ohio, you know, without a bunch of money to travel, just being able to leave the confines of our own lives. Books have allowed me to do that. The library was like this place just full of portals to other worlds and other lives and other times. Um, so in many ways, this book, Cloud Cuckoo Land, is kind of a, a tribute to that, that um, that books allow us to slip out of the walls, the proverbial walls and the metaphorical walls of our own lives. And thank goodness they do, because I think it's helped me live kind of a multiplicity of experiences that otherwise I would be limited in, in some ways. So I think the pandemic kind of emphasized that for a lot of us who are readers, Um And so in each case, Anna, she's stuck inside the siege of Constantinople. There's these huge mega cannons bombarding these ancient walls of the city. And uh, Zeno's children are stuck upstairs because of an attack on this little library. And Constance is stuck. There's a whole like invisible microscopic disease assaulting her around this vault. And the book for each of these characters is a kind of a way out. you know, a way to slip out of the walls of our own minds. And so there is a lot of meta in there, like you said in your introduction, there's a lot of saying like, I hope, and I can't assume that it will, but I hope the novel itself is a way for readers to also slip outside the confines of their own lives. Yeah, I definitely made a note at one point. I was like, I'm sitting in a cab. I was camping while I was reading your book at one point. And I was like, okay, so I'm camping. I'm in a tent on this platform on earth but I'm in a book and I'm in a spaceship, but I'm also here in this library that's a virtual library and I'm essentially in Google Earth looking down <laughs> this street on, I can't pronounce it, Quanok, yeah. yeah, in Greenland. Exactly. Like, where am I? You know, it's amazingly complex. It's very interesting. Oh, good, uh, but that's like what books represented to me. And it's maybe not that complicated. Like when my mom hands us the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that first book, and you're like, the whole metaphor of this wardrobe is, you know, you open the door, you climb through, and you enter this really rich world. That's the metaphor of what a book has provided for me for so long. You know, a book is like this, this little universe you get to hold in your hands. And so I love playing with scale in my work and playing with like the scale of human lives and juxtaposing them against the scale of say geologic time or uh, in all the light we cannot see. I love playing with like this. I open with this little model of the city that's getting bombed inside of the real city. And there's something about fiction that allows you to play with this macro and micro in ways that I love the way Borges does that or or Italo Calvino will play with like making little cities out of words. Uh, so I think it's fun to kind of play with those things inside things inside things. And uh, and when I learned that ancient Greek novels, which were maybe dismissed in the 60s and 70s as often, and there's five that we have left and that we have the titles of at least 20 others that have survived through time. We, first, they were dismissed as maybe inferior to classical poetry and drama, but uh, new scholarship in the 80s and 90s has kind of uh, shown them to be quite intertextual, intertextually playful and playing with fictionality in lots of ways. Uh, so I invent in this, inside this novel a novel by a writer named Antonius Diogenes, whose work has been totally erased from the world. This is like the novelist's worst nightmare. Jane, there's a, a book lasts about seven or 800 years after he writes it. And somebody inside Constantinople writes a review of the book. Then Diogenes' novel disappears from the earth, but the review survives until this day. <laughs> And the review suggested that it was, you know, it was divided into 24 sections and involved a trip around the world, possibly a trip to the moon. So it might have been the first science fiction novel. And that it, apparently in a preface, Diogenes claimed that he discovered the entire text of his novel inside a tomb. Mark Stranger, whoever you are, open this to learn what will amaze you. And of course, the reader, even in ancient times, knows, wink, wink, he didn't find this thing. Like he, he's making it up. But he's playing so much already with awareness of 
this is all just magic. These are all you know, little marks on a page. And yet you're going to believe that they're real reader if I do my job well enough. And there's something so poignantly beautiful about that, making a reader aware that she's reading something that's an artifice and yet celebrating the power of that artifice at the same time. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing. I'm, I know we're running out of time, but I just want to keep asking you questions. <laughs> you know, I have, I was thinking about, there's a few I was thinking about children. And when you're talking about little, little things and like the little worlds of children are just so imaginative. And in so many of your stories, like one of my you know, I love this book, but really my favorite, probably my favorite piece of writing ever is your short story, The Deep, and the little girl Ruby who comes out of the pond with this, like, kind of self-made aqua helmet that she can breathe underwater, and it's just magic. And I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on on why the child's perspective is important and in literature and and how you go about making it not sentimental or not you know, saccharine, how do you make those characters deep and real and emotive? Oh, thanks, Jane. Well, I don't know if I can do it, but the writers who I admire the most who do do it, you just invest wholeheartedly in in the idiosyncrasies of one person, one kid. I think that's the way to avoid cliche is you dive just into what is this one person, what is in her heart? Uh, for me, why am I choosing child protagonists so much lately? Probably because I became a dad. I think everything I've written in the past 17 years, since my kids are 17 now, uh, probably it's partially that. But also there's a maybe more complicated thing in there too, in that I'm getting towards 50 years old and I'm finding that it's a little harder for me. I have to work a little harder to find awe in my life, that um, habit encrusts our eyes sometimes um, and the way sometimes maybe for those of you who commute to work sometimes you don't remember your commute to work like I ride my bike and sometimes I'm like oh, I don't even remember the whole bike ride to work today because I'm stuck inside my head and it, I don't want to live unconsciously at, at all even though that's an impossible goal but we're here for such a really incredibly scarily short amount of time 80 years if you're really really fortunate and I just want to not sleepwalk through those moments. And so I'm drawn to artists who can somehow recreate the world for me so that I see it anew, whether they're disrupting syntax in a way that I'm like, oh, this sentence is so Rachel Cusk's simile right here is so good that I see what it's like to be on an airplane and hear the, the litany of boarding announcements all over again. Uh, there's something so powerful about art that does that. And so I want to try to do that in my own work. And so I think kids help me do that. Being around kids helps me do that. Um, the way I used to take my kids to the grocery store and they're like, this place is incredible. Like, look, dad, Cheez-Its or something. You know, you're like, yeah, Cheez-Its are kind of special. You know, you forget all this stuff as an adult. And so in my work, I think having young characters, having Ruby in that story, The Deep, being so fascinated by the deep ocean the way I was as a kid. And then, you know, you learn like, oh my gosh, Detroit was a sea miles deep, not that long ago. What does that even mean? And uh, as an adult, you're like, well, it doesn't mean that much because I have a 200 emails I have to answer. But when you're a kid, you're like, wait, there were animals and creatures and giant sloths were roaming this area. What does that mean? And uh, so finding characters that can re help me recapture that sense of awe, sometimes hopefully that can, rekindle an enthusiasm for the beauties of the world. Hopefully that can transfer to your readers as well. And so maybe that's why I keep choosing young scientists as my characters now. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. What do you think about then the future? I mean, I kept thinking about all these snake oil salesmen when I was reading Cloud Cuckoo Land and thinking about how Edison uh, when he first invented the light bulb, it didn't actually last that long. It would last like maybe a minute or so. And he would have this room and he'd bring journalists in one by one into the room, show them the light bulb, escort them out, change the light bulb to a new one and bring in the new, you know, the new journalist. And I was just thinking so much about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and the promise and of this like big tech to save us all. And, you know, we were speaking a little bit about the new name of the company that will not be named. <laughs> um, but were you were you thinking about that at all when you were thinking about building this this world and this arc? 
Absolutely. And in Cloud Cuckoo Land, I'm asking a lot of questions about it because I, you know, the book took me seven years to write. The kids were, my twin boys were 10 to 17 while I was writing it. And, you know, especially in the thick of researching and working on this book was the time they started begging for smartphones. And, you know, we were some of, according to them, the last parents in the world to allow them to have phones. And I think it was in eighth grade or seventh grade. And, uh, to see the school really reinforcing the use of some of these mega corporations technologies where you have to be on Google to use, you know, Google Classroom or um, uh, what I remember the moment we decided to get them phones was they were voting for class officers and their advisor said, you know, everybody get out your phones and vote. And our kids were the only two who didn't have phones to vote for their class vice president or whatever. And so, you know, for them to keep up socially, you did feel an obligation to get them these tools, but then you're so worried about how they harvest their attention and you watch their reading habits change and their sleep habits change. Um, so I really, raising kids in this wild west of technology has caused us a lot of anxiety and it does make me skeptical about a lot of the claims of connection that technology does claim to make. I think obviously it is wonderful to uh, hear from friends that you haven't heard from for 15 years or send them photos of your puppy on a sunny day. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I worry so much about uh, how much this world of infinite choice that's coming at us and how much our kids have to deal with when they're also supposed to be learning and dreaming and exploring and playing. It's hard to play when you have something chirping at you all the time. Uh, so yeah, in the novel, I explore some of that, that, especially the promises of AI to deliver limitless knowledge. And I'm kind of juxtaposing those in Constance's section about the dangers of climate chaos and how those two things will intersect. There's an AI in the novel called Sybil, who uh, he's, Constance is kind of encourages a little girl to assume that Sybil is kind of all knowing. And as the novel unfolds, hopefully this doesn't give too much away, you start to learn that uh, Sybil is limited in some things, and Constance kind of constructs a library in her own mind of things that, that Sybil doesn't know. And so, yeah, whether or not I'm making judgments, I hope the reader starts to ask herself questions about what, what are the promises of technology and what are the limitations. Yeah, that's awesome. So you, you're talking so much about research and going deep. What are you obsessed with? You know, not asking what you're writing next, but what are you obsessed with at the moment? What's gnawing at you? What are you just trailing right now? Hmm, good question. Okay, so I was reading this book by Tony Hiss, a really interesting writer. And just in the past couple of days, I've been trying to understand the biosphere. So you think of the earth as like, huge. And when you're standing on the ground, you look up into the blue yonder and it looks like it goes on forever. But if the earth were the size of a grapefruit, all the space that life has to occupy, and that's from like microbes at the bottom of the deepest ocean trenches to like the raptors soaring high above the Himalaya, all that space, uh, if the earth were the size of a grapefruit, it would be 0.2 millimeters thick, which is basically a coat of paint around the grapefruit. So it's just an incredibly thin shared space. If you flattened it all out, you can imagine like it's only three or four miles high and it's not that large. And we share it with so much diversity of life. And in our lifetimes, Jane, a lot of that life has been removed. The, the climate crisis, rightfully so, is getting more attention, thank goodness, too late already, but getting more attention in the media. But we're undergoing a simultaneous crisis, which is the biodiversity crisis. And there's so many wild fish and animals, I mean, so many mammals and insects being removed from the world. And I think we even need to start thinking about how our language, like the human and non-human world or the human and natural world, how we're even thinking about ourselves as separate when we have this incredibly complicated system of microbes inside of us, keeping us alive and helping us digest food and store fats. And so I've just been trying to think about how, what are new ways we can recognize our interdependencies with other species on the planet. Um, you know, for, when we were growing up, we thought all of inheritance came from our ancestors and that all the diversity of life came from genetic variation, random mutations, you know, from offspring to offspring to offspring. But we've learned in the past like 10 years that through horizontal gene transfer, you know, 8% of the human genome comes from 
horizontal gene transfer comes from viruses. So like we're in this incredibly complicated concert and conversation with everything around us. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that and keep imagining that um, or otherwise our species is in some trouble, I think. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to encourage anyone listening to to buy not only Cloud Cuckoo Land, but for sure, uh, the Shell Collector and Memory Wall as well. They're absolutely stunning collections. So thank you so much, Tony, Anthony, Doerr. You are a marvel. Thank you for spending this time with us. We're so appreciative. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jane. Be well. Now, educational gag orders. This week, we at PEN America published a new report outlining the legislative efforts to ban discussion of certain topics. It's an effort that's taking hold nationwide, and many of these bills seek to limit teaching and learning about topics like racism, sexism, and American history. It comes as political leaders escalate their crusade to ban books from American classrooms, Author George M. Johnson has seen his book, All Boys Aren't Blue, banned in states across the country. PEN America's Jonathan Friedman spoke to him this week about why that is and how to defend the freedom to read and to learn. So, George, your book has been banned, removed in schools, and challenged all across the country. I think the running tally is now eight states, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Florida, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Arkansas, Texas. Why do you think your book is being challenged so ardently? Uh, my book is being challenged so ardently because my book is telling the truth. And we know that the United States of America has always had an issue with any type of text that tells the truth. Uh, whether we are talking about the origins of this country through genocide and through slavery, or whether we are talking about how the forefathers were slave owners themselves and were actually terrible people, uh, this country has had a way of creating an alternative truth around uh, some of their greatest heroes and some of, uh, as well as an alternative truth just around what the actual narrative of America is. And so when I put a text out into the world that is a Black queer coming of age story that tells the truth about what actually happens to Black children in school systems and what actually happens to Black queer children in school systems who have to deal with the intersection of, uh, intersection of race and identity, uh, sexuality, uh, all while fighting many of the oppressions of anti-Blackness and racism, uh, and we call out those truths, um, and we speak truth into power, uh, it makes people fearful. It makes people um, worried that the next generation, which is the youth, will actually operate from a space of knowing what the actual truth of many of our stories are of the people who are around them rather than the truth that they have been sold. Um, you know, this country is anti-queer, this country is anti-Black, and anytime you have a text that has the intersection of both of those, I think it just makes it uh, the primary target, uh, target number one. And so I think that is why we are seeing, although there are other books being banned, mine specifically is the one that is being challenged uh, the hardest. There's no question, uh, as a long-term, you know, defender of books that we are seeing in our work, a huge intensification and ramping up of efforts to remove books from schools. And as you said, it's uh, a lot of it is, you know, targeting uh, books with representations of race, racism, gender, LGBTQ identities, sexual assault. I mean, it's a pretty consistent uh, set of themes that are being, you know, targeted. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised by this current backlash, the speed with which it has intensifying you were telling me before that, you know, when you put out All Boys Aren't Blue, you kind of thought this would happen. Is that so? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. I mean, going into writing All Boys Aren't Blue, I knew what type of content I was putting into the book. And I also knew that this book was being geared towards young adults. Um, you know, we have an issue in this country, specifically when it comes to young adults, that we assume that there are topics that are too heavy for them to read or to understand. Uh, I am not a believer of that. I believe that because certain things happened to me at the age of five and at the age of 12 and at the age of 15 and at the age of 20, uh, that 
a child who is five and who is 10 and who is 12 and who is 15 and who is 20 uh, has the capacity to need to know what those type of things are, whether it be sexual abuse, whether it be racism, whether it be uh, homophobia. Uh, there is this belief that if we keep these things away from our kids that, or keep these things away from the youth that they won't indulge in them. When the reality is, us keeping resources and us keeping these stories away from them doesn't stop them from going through the same situations. It just means that they don't have the knowledge or the education to handle those situations in a way that can be best suited for them. And so when I was writing this book and knowing that I was putting these particular type of quote unquote heavy topics in it, um, I knew that there would be backlash from parents who felt that their kids were uh, too young to read something like that or, or uh, unable to understand that when realistically I was a child and I was a child who was eight years old and nine years old who talked about sex at the lunchroom table. It wasn't that my parents exposed me to it. It was just that the world we live in, if one student is exposed to it and brings it back to a table of 10 of us, then we're all exposed to it. And so even if our parents at home are blocking it, it doesn't stop us from navigating a real world that it's always going to be present. And so we should be giving our kids those resources and those tools. Um, and so that's why I knew this book was gonna get banned because I knew I was doing something uh, that was very, very different uh, than, than what you have seen in the young adult space, specifically because memoir is more of an adult topic or more of an adult thing. And so me writing a memoir for young adults, uh, it, it was just something that was radical, which is why I call it a manifesto. Well, the book has been described as a, quote, reassuring testimony for young queer men of color. And and I wanted to kind of, you know, put that alongside the uh, letter sent this week by Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, calling on schools across Texas uh, to uh, set new standards for, quote unquote, ensuring pornography isn't in schools, that obscene content, content and graphic materials aren't available uh, in schools. And I know that All Boys Aren't Blue hasn't been targeted exactly in that letter in the way some other books have, but it's certainly being swept up in this broader moment. What do you say to some of those, uh, some of those, you know, I don't know, witch hunts uh, that are now impacting your book? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's all um, being taken out of context, most of it. Uh, anytime you're talking about like, oh, this is pornography, or this is sodomy, and uh, this is incest. And it's like, while in the same breath saying that the Bible should be taught in school, it's like, yes, but the Bible also contains all of those same topics, right? So it's like, how are we actually deciphering what we are deeming pornography, what we are deeming sodomy, what we are deeming, I mean, literally, Sodom and Gomorrah, the term sodomy is literally coming from a term in the Bible that discusses this, right? And so I found it very interesting, the juxtaposition of how these people are like saying that they're operating from a space of Christian principles and values when the main text of Christian principles and values covers these very same topics. Even if it doesn't get as graphic, the Bible discusses all of these things, right? Um, we have never had an issue with Greek mythology, right? In schools, I remember learning Greek and Roman mythology. Greek and Roman mythology also talks about rape, and it also talked about a lot of very heavy subjects uh, while we were in uh, middle school when we really started to learn about the Greek and Roman mythology. It covered all of those very same types of topics. Um, and so it, it's just one of those things where um, people get on this purity stand, this this whole like purity notion of uh, that these topics harm our children when realistically our children still operate in the real world, the real world that has these topics on television, the real world that already has all of these topics in a myriad of spaces. It's almost like the whole notion of like not telling a child where babies come from. And it's like, who does that harm at the end of the day, right? Like who, who are we protecting when we don't tell a child that this is how a child is made or this is how a baby is made? But we'll hand a child a baby doll so that we can start conditioning them to take care of children by the age of four, right? So it's like, that's a very interesting juxtaposition that we live in. And I just feel that this whole witch hunt on books, um, 
it has nothing to do with books. It just has to do with the fact that people do not want to face the truth of the matter of uh, situations and of people who live outside of this patriarchal, white, cis, heterosexual bubble. Uh, but a lot of us exist outside of that. And uh, it is necessary that children and youth know who they exist in this world with uh, because they become the next future leaders. And if they understand that Black queer people exist, they then become future leaders and future um, governors and senators and politicians who then operate from a lens of knowing that they have to also protect the rights of other people who are with them. I think that's such an important point, you know, this notion that there are other identities that exist and, and deserve uh, rightfully to be, you know, represented and available in, in literature. I wanted to ask, you know, I've been talking to write, aspiring writers, uh, people who, you know, are working on manuscripts right now, uh, who are kind of feeling very intimidated in this moment, that they uh, are afraid that, you know, they might not be able to publish the book that they wanted, or they're afraid that they might encounter the kind of, you know, backlash that you've been dealing with. I'd be curious to hear, you know, how you're just holding up in the face of this, what you're doing and what you'd say to those who are feeling intimidated right now. Yeah, I mean, I feel pretty good. I think like, you know, that initial reaction was like, how dare they challenge my book? That was like when that first article came out, uh, which was probably like seven or eight weeks ago when I got wind that my book was being challenged in Kansas City. Um, but then after that, you know, I just kind of lean on my ancestors. Like Toni Morrison is also being swept up in this book ban. And so, you know, Toni Morrison has been banned before. And so I think about the fact that like, you know, the banned book list is not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of, you know, because most banned books are books that are like necessary and really, really dive into heavy topics that people fear. Um, and so I'm proud that they're trying to, to stop my truth in many ways. Um, I can't be intimidated. I mean, I put my story out there for the world to see and nobody's gonna deny me my truth. They denied my ancestors their truth and they have, you know, they, they continue to try and have this particular type of erasure, specifically of Black stories, even more specifically of Black queer stories. Um, and so I just say to other writers, like, you know, tell your story, right? Like, not everybody is going to like your, everyone's not going to like your story. Everybody's not going to even agree with your story. But that doesn't mean that your story doesn't need to be told. Um, I went into this knowing that at some point, this will probably be my fight and this will be my battle. But um, I live a purpose-driven life. And so if your purpose is to tell your story and effort to help other people, then focus on those people who you're helping. Um, my story has helped a lot of people. I see it from daily with people, what they say, how they DM me, how they talk to me. Um, and so that's who I focus on and that's who I worry about. I can't worry about people who are against me telling my truth and telling the truth. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just can't be intimidated in that way. Right. Um, and banned books lead to more sales. So, I mean, I think that's the more interesting thing is like the adverse effect of you banning a book just makes more people want to know what the hell they're trying to ban. And so, you know, it's not, it's a, it's a badge of honor for me to, to, to have people try to attack my truth in this way. And, um, I think anybody who is seeing what's happening, um, should know that it is important to tell the truth and it is important to write your truth because uh, there are so many people out here against you doing it uh, and your publisher will have your back. So that's the other thing too. Like publishers are going to have your back. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, being here for the inspiring commentary. And I, I just want to emphasize the solidarity that uh, we at PEN America and all of our authors uh, stand with you in, in the face of these challenges. Thank you. Now for tough questions with PEN America CEO, Suzanne Nossel, our weekly discussion of the tough conversations about free speech from the past week. Suzanne, as always, welcome. Thank you. So we just heard our own Jonathan Friedman discussing the effect of these educational gag orders and the, that they're having on classrooms across the country. I want first for you to put on your legal hat a bit here and help us understand, you know, why these bills are such a profound threat to free expression. I mean, someone pointed out to us the other day, don't state legislators, um, and by extension their constituents, have latitude to set laws about what kids in schools should and shouldn't learn. How are these laws any different? 
Well, they do have latitude, particularly when it comes to uh, secondary and primary education. It's different in universities where we have uh, court opinions upholding academic freedom. That actually does not apply in the same way uh, in a high school or an elementary school. And those curricula are set by school boards normally, you know, that are elected. And so there is a political interplay in terms of those curricula. What I think is, is so pernicious here, though, is... You know, the, the, the type of speech that the uh, uh, infringement on free speech that the First Amendment really zeroes in on most intensively are viewpoint-based restrictions, bans or punishments based on a, spe- a specific viewpoint. And that's really the form that these prohibitions, these legislative prohibitions take. It's particular ideas, teachings, subjects that are put into the bullseye of these laws and uh, essentially taken outside of bounds for not just teachers, but even classroom discussion. You know, we talk in the report about sort of circumstances in which a student might bring something up in a conversation only to have the teacher possibly have to shut them down because going there could run afoul of one of these laws. And it's just so easy to see how that would put a teacher in in such a difficult position to feel like there are these red lines. Like it's one thing, you know, there's a math curriculum that's sort of adopted, you know, they want to go to Singapore math and, you know, the school board studies that and they, you know, buy all of the textbooks and workbooks and that's what you're supposed to teach. And, you know, if you don't teach that, if you teach another method, if you reject that, uh, you know, you're probably uh, violating the terms of your employment in a school board. And, you know, I think that kind of curricular direction is perfectly appropriate and normal what we're used to having this is really something very different it's pinpointing you know specific theories opinions ideas even historical events and saying no no you can't go there and and i i to me that is at odds with the system that we have of education where you know yes there's a curriculum but we like we do with all of our societal institutions, we prize openness to conversation, to debate, to a breadth of ideas. We want students to be able to ask any question that might come to their mind. We want teachers to use their own base of knowledge, their creativity, to expose their pupils to a breadth of perspectives. And this really cuts against that. And so you know, it, as we say in the report, it remains to be tested as a legal matter how exactly uh, uh, courts would treat this. But it seems quite clear on its face that it's precisely the sort of viewpoint-based discrimination that the Constitution abhors. I mean, Suzanne, there's a cynics approach to this, right, which is that there's politicians or folks who see an opportunity. We saw Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, say this week that he wants to make parental rights a keystone of the midterm elections next year. I mean, is that all this is? It's just a political football and, and we're giving a sense of what the what the fallout is, what the effects of it is? Or do you think there's something deeper? I mean, is there some is there some validity to concerns that parents have right now about what's happening in classrooms? You know, I think there is something deeper and that there are some parents who have some genuine concerns about what their kids are being exposed to and the notion that, you know, there's sort of this, this uh, you know, my, my view is that we should be encouraging young people to look at our history through a variety of lenses, through the lens of uh, race, through the lens of socioeconomics, gender, uh, you know, traditional kind of power mapping analysis uh, like you'd encounter in a political science classroom. I think all of those lenses sort of have their place. And, And if you're exposed to thinkers who utilize that each vantage point, you know, you can kind of synthesize and and come up with your own understanding of what's going on. And so, you know, in my view, that's sort of roughly how it should work. I think the concern here is that it's sort of a single lens is being emphasized to the exclusion of other sorts of perspectives. And that, you know, in some instances that we've heard about, you know, there, there are times where that lens has been used to perhaps, um, you know, paint with a broad brush and make young people, uh, you know, feel sort of guilty and burdened with the sins of their 
forebearers or with you know just generations of Americans long past that you know don't have uh, much to do with them and that you know there can be a kind of heavy-handedness to it that it even could uh, elicit a backlash where instead of making people more sensitive to racial inequity and injustice you know they actually come to feel it's being almost rammed down their throat and they reject it and so I think there, there's a kernel of genuine concern here but I think uh, you know, that is now being whipped up into this frenzy. And I think most of the people who are really behind this are not motivated so much by that genuine concern as by what they see as a political opportunity to fire up uh, a base. But, you know, I, I also think those who are opposed to these bans sort of to, to reject that kernel or refuse to entertain it, you know, I also think is a mistake because I think it's real and I think we're, we're seeing it uh, rear its head and it's inflecting our politics and we need to come to grips with it and we need to be able to talk to parents who, uh, you know, are sort of on the genuine side of this. Yeah. Well, let's just switch gears briefly to close out the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection this week. Um, subpoenaed a, a huge group of former Trump White House and campaign staff. At the same time, there really isn't any genuine Republican buy-in with the investigation, at least on Capitol Hill. I mean, with that in mind, even if these folks respond to the subpoena and actually supply testimony, do you think we'll ever have a clear shared understanding of what happened on January 6th? You know, shared is really... I think the operative word there, because I, I don't think in this climate that we're going to have any kind of unity in terms of an interpretation of January 6th and what happened and who was culpable. I nonetheless think this is an extremely important exercise for the historical record. And I think, you know, I, I, I hope that in, in uh, future generations, they'll look back on this as a serious investigation, which I believe that it is, that, it, you know, it's factual. There's an effort to draw in you know, a whole range of materials and perspectives and uh, eyewitness testimony. One of the things I'm most focused on and interested in is a question of you know, kind of what Trump knew, how mu- how, to what degree they knew that this violent attack was being planned. Because you know, I wrote about Trump's remarks uh, that he gave on the mall the morning of January 6th and said that I didn't think they rose to the level of incitement to imminent violence, but I think that calculus may be different if this investigation establishes that he was aware of what they exactly had had planned and that he knew violence was imminent. And then, you know, you can, you have to, I think, interpret his words. You know, I talk a lot in my book and elsewhere about intent and context. And I think that revelation, uh, if it emerges from this investigation, really will color, you know, how we look at what he did. And so I, I think their effort to get to the bottom of that uh, and, and to find out exactly what the people around him were aware of, you know, did they know that people were going to be carrying weapons, that they were planning to storm the Capitol, to break wind down windows and doors, to confront police? You know, certainly we're hearing there were indications of that that were bubbling across social media, that there were local law enforcement agencies that were predicting that. And so... I think we need to try to find out how far that went. All right. Well, Suzanne Nossel, uh, CEO of PEN America, also author, as she mentioned, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. And that's our episode for Friday, November 12th. Join us next week for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon. <laughs>